Thank you for listening to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast from Asheville, North Carolina. For more information on Trinity Baptist Church, please visit tbcashville.org. Or to learn more about our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton, please visit ralphsextonministries.com. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton. Take your Bible. Let's go back into Acts Acts 17, we'll continue our study as we uh, go into this special chapter. This is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts, and we're going through it uh, word by word and verse by verse as we're discovering there's so much in this particular chapter. Last time we were together, we covered Acts 17 verses 10 through 14. And if you missed that Bible study, let me refresh your memory. On verse number 10, we see that Paul and Silas are being sent. The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night. Paul and Silas were sent. And anytime you see that phrase in this book of Acts, the brethren... That's another phrase for, if you're making notes, you can write down the believers, the brethren, the believers. Remember, the, the way they are spreading the gospel is they've left Jerusalem and they're going to towns, cities that have a synagogue, right? Why? Synagogues, they already believe in Jehovah. They already believe in God. So now they're going to those religious people and they're telling them that Jesus, Yeshua, was the Messiah. And so now you know he is the Son of God. And so then out of that, they come out of law, they move into grace, and then they organize churches, all right? And they were first called Christians at one of the cities we just studied about, which one was it? Antioch. Your boy, y'all took good notes, all right? So there's where they were. And that's how they, the conversion process worked. That was their modus operandi for conversion. They would go to these religious Jews, tell them that Jesus was the Messiah, and all the eyewitnesses, all the eye accounts to prove that he was who he said he was. All right, go to verse 11. In review, uh, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And remember what we talked about, the more noble in the Greek New Testament. If you read it through in the Greek New Testament, it talks about those that were well-born. Now, whether we want to admit this or not, 2,000 years ago, there was a caste system. And... There was a, very definitely, there were still people in servitude, debt slavery, and people were in different positions. Now, you don't want to talk about it, but it still goes on in the world today. India is probably uh, one of the world's worst offenders, the nation of India, because if you're born in a certain people group, then you have to stay there the rest of your life. You can't move up, get a better education, get a bigger house, get a bigger car or motorcycle or whatever because you're stuck in this layer of economic slavery, okay? 
So 2,000 years ago, obviously, it was even uh, in this beautiful town. And it means uh, well-born. Uh, let me give you another example. Hold your finger here in Acts. Back up in the New Testament to the book of Luke. Go to Luke 19. Uh, sometimes I think it helps when we connect dots in our Bible study. Luke 19, and let me read into your hearing uh, verse uh, 11. Go to verse 12. Uh, Luke 19, verse 12. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So all through the New Testament, you see this uh, layer of economic strata. And so in the Greek New Testament, they refer to these Dalton as the well-born. They were upper crust in their development. There's three or four levels of that division. Let me give them to you, that well-born. It meant people that were more courteous. They had learned to have civility among themselves. So they were more courteous. Number two, they had a better disposition. It means that they could listen and would allow you to speak before they tried, here it comes, to finish their sentence. I know you don't know anybody like that, but occasionally there are people that before you can finish your sentence, they're going to finish it for you. Well, this talks about the better disposition. They were good listeners. I know, I know. I need to move on very quickly. <laughs> so, all right. Then uh, the third element there was this thing of they were more polished, having to do with not only sophistication, but even, believe it or not, etiquette, that they knew how to conduct themselves. This is all in this phrase, well-born or more noble. And the fourth part obviously had to do with education, that people had a desire to be better educated. It's one thing to get to a plateau, but it doesn't matter if it's a trade or a trade school, or it doesn't matter if it's a school or a high school or a college, or, uh, but there's, there should be in all of us as students of the Word, or even out in the world in our secular jobs, we ought to have a desire to get better. There ought to be that desire. I want to read more. I'd like to know more. Uh, you know, and one thing I always admired about my father was the fact that even uh, every single day he uh, studied, he applied himself, and even on his deathbed, he had that resolute dedication, I'm going to see Jesus. I would like to know more about him than I know right now. So he would read and study. Well, that that's ought to be a part of our lives, that we would not only be courteous, be good listeners, and be uh, able to have civility one to another. Uh, that goes back to the verse in the Greek, you know you pass from death into life because you love those who believe, or the believers are those who have followed Christ. And then the fourth part is that we want to study and to be educated in the things of the Lord, okay? Again, at verse 11, it says, In that they received the word 
They receive the word with all readiness of mind. With all readiness of mind. In other words, when they came there and they began to teach, not only would they preach, but because of the culture and because their journey was underwritten by business people like Lydia, the multimillionaire, then Paul could not only teach on Sabbath, but he could have church on Sunday, but then it was financed for him that he could uh, then take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and he could teach. He would hope open court, so to speak. We had Bible Institute last night, but he would have Bible Institute every day. You follow what I'm saying? That's that readiness uh, of mind. They were wanting to learn. They wanted to study. And then it says in verse 11 that they studied uh, the Scriptures uh, daily. And, and why did they do that? They wanted to find out if it was true or not. Is that true? Then why? The Bible is of no private interpretation. So they had the Old Testament text. They would go through Isaiah. They'd go through the prophecies of the Messiah and say, does the life of Jesus match up? Five for five. Oh, yeah, they're the same. So they wanted to know, is it true? Can he be the Messiah? And those were questions that they were processing and they were going through. All right, go to verse 12. Uh, Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. Uh, Because they studied the scriptures, many of them believed. What are we suffering in America spiritually tonight? We're, studying a, we're suffering a spiritual famine because we have substituted religious entertainment in the house of the Lord for the study of the Scriptures. And when you substitute religion, and believe me, it's not wicked, it's not bad. Do you understand know what I'm saying? But what I'm saying is, you can't grow on religious entertainment. You can't get a taproot on religious entertainment. You don't have a preparation for eternity. It is good and it's better than the world. You follow me? But you've got to have that, that scripture in your life. You've got to have it. And you, it's got to be there. So uh, they became believers and they trusted God for salvation because as they studied the scriptures, they found Man, I'm lost. I need the saving grace of God. And it says, many of them believe. And then it says also what? Honorable women, which were Greeks. I don't know, I don't know if you know, I uh, have been able or had opportunity to watch any of the impeachment uh, trial in Washington, D.C., I know you're working, and I've sent the DVR two or three times uh, that I could come back and hit the high places and look at some stuff in the evening. But those men that are in the battle, uh, men and women, some of the men are married and some of the women are married. Majority of those we've seen on television are men. And... uh, 
And we have seen our congressman, Mark Meadows, over and over. Uh, God has elevated him to a position of a national voice. And your congressman has a walk of faith. He loves the Lord. And more than one time over these last few years, we've talked sometimes uh, uh, daily and sometimes uh, having prayer together before he would go even in to a situation. And we would pray together. Well, that's very unusual. I thank God for that. There's another man that's got a walk of faith, Jim Jordan. And, and he's a believer. And he's being used. But here's where I'm going with this. Behind Mark Meadows is Debbie Meadows. And behind Jim Jordan is Polly Jordan. And they're women of faith. Matter of fact, they've called today asking that we pray for their husbands. And, and Debbie and Polly both said they may come here Sunday that we can pray over them and our country. Do you understand? People are desperate. They know that you're not going to do this with a Republican or a Democrat. It's way past politics. It's a battle between good and evil. Isn't that something? And, and this scripture points this out. Honorable women. Women, you have power and influence many times far greater than a man because of the attributes that God gave to the woman. I tell teenage girls when Musette and I used to teach, I would say, young ladies, you have more power over that young man that you're dating or friends with than you ever dreamed because of your walk of faith with the Lord. Because of that heart that God has placed within you to walk righteously before the Lord. That women have the power to influence the prayer life of a home and a church and a family. Power. Go through this Bible. God puts a lot of emphasis on the leadership of women just like He does men. It's put in the Word. It's powerful. And in this passage, I'm fascinated with this. Also of honorable women which were Greeks. God pointed them out first and, and a few guys and some men. <laughs> but, but the ladies were taking time to study. They had the, why, why does God use women in such a powerful way here? It's because of the motherhood of the Holy Spirit. The daddy in the home always represents the law. The mother in the home always represents grace and mercy. How many of you mamas and grandmothers can remember your children, your grandchildren saying, will you ask daddy for me? I rest my case. Court over. Will you ask daddy for me? Why? Daddy's the law. Mama's grace and mercy. And when they would go around the mama and ask the daddy first, and the daddy said, well, no. I'm, well, of course not, you can't. And then they'd come crying to the mama, and the mama said, didn't I tell you not to ask him? Let me ask him. Huh? 
The Holy Ghost in the local church is the one asking Daddy. He's going to the Heavenly Father. He represents that office work. And what you're seeing here is God put this in, in, in play so that we would see it. And then it says in verse uh, that these honorable women, it also meant the prominent women in place of leadership, that it says, verse 13, Jews of Thessalonica, they stirred up the people. And then in verse 14, they sent them away. Uh, and that means uh, by sea, or they put Paul in a boat. And then Silas and Timothy, they abode there still. Now, here's, I want to pick up the next phase. And I'm going to get Dr. Scorby to read us. You want to follow. He's going to start... In verse 17, and I mean in verse 15, and then he's going to go on down to about verse 21 for us. Idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now I'm going to pause there because when we get to verse 22 we're going to be talking about Paul standing on Mars Hill. And I want to make that a special night for us and uh, that we can go there together. In verse 15 we see what happened. Uh, it says, They that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. I think it's an interesting phrase, they that conducted Paul. What does that mean? It means the believers that loved the Apostle Paul realized that he was God's man and they wanted to enable him or help him reach as many people as possible. So they were in charge of providing the food and the housing and getting him to the places to preach, meeting the right people, opening the doors. Uh, something you could compare it to would be like uh, a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, there's always people in front of Dr. Graham making sure that he had a place to stay, good food to eat, place to rest, and then the time and the place where you're going to meet to preach the gospel. They that conducted him. Okay? What's that teaching us? Everybody has got a place of service in the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't have big shots or little shots. Everybody's important. It takes the church to get the gospel message out. It takes all of us working together. Now, uh, Pastor Nathan, I know you like the history side of these things, and so we've got the Apostle Paul coming into this celebrated city. It is very possible that the Apostle Paul is the very first Christian minister to ever walk into the city of Athens. 
And it seems probable to me from studying the scripture, but it looks like that. Now let me give you some background that's going to help you understand what's going to happen here in Athens. This is the most celebrated city of Greece, Athens. It's distinguished itself in military proudness. Actually, the skill and the study of war. They had a war college in Athens. They trained people to think how to do war, how to do battle. And people came from other nations and other countries, and they wanted to have the best training for their warriors, their generals. They would come here. This was also the city of Athens was an educational hub. And so we have a lot of school teachers here tonight. And you went to uh, college or university and you got your degree and some of you got your master's, some of you got your doctorate or here tonight and so that you could teach, okay? Well, Athens would be the place you would go to train to be an educator because they could do those levels of educational prowess, okay? Then it was also a place of eloquence in culture. It was a place of refinement that you could go through in the city of Athens. Now you've got to think what Paul's getting ready to do. Paul's going to invade this city, and we're going to talk about the spiritual side in a moment. But think about what God's allowed him to do. You remember Paul's background? He's a Pharisee, right? He's a Pharisee's Pharisee. Matter of fact, he's the star pupil. Remember? Remember, he's the smartest one in the whole class. Remember, he's probably got a genius IQ. Remember, his family's extremely wealthy. He's not intimidated in any way by all the class, the polish, the wealth, and the education. He can match it, equal it, or surpass it with what God trained him along with saving grace to go to this town. You follow me so far? You got to make that connection. Then Athens was known for its civility. It was known all over that the most... What do we... If we talk about someone or a culture is well behaved, we say that they are civilized, right? Well, the most civilized world city in the world 2,000 years ago with Athens. Athens was the most civilized. They were known for their civility and politeness. Uh, the city was uh, named Athens after their worship of uh, Minerva, and they had uh, a goddess there. They had the chief goddess, and, uh, and when they began to pray, they dedicated the city. So underneath that religious side of worshiping their goddess, they had four elements. They had philosophy, they had the arts, they had poets, and they had statesmen, and all of them wove this goddess worship into their lifestyle. Now think about, why are we discussing that? Because Paul is invading their world. And what I'm trying to get you to understand where you work, where you go to school, where you go to university, where you live next door to somebody, God puts you there. Just like God put Paul in Athens, God's got you at your appointed time and place that you can be salt and light because I'm telling you, he's going into a tough neighborhood 
we're thinking about, well, a tough neighborhood would be a heathen population living in a, uh, uh, with dirt floors and a thatched roof. That's tough, and that's a tough place. But it's also just as tough to go into this sophisticated culture and try to penetrate their intellect when they are rich and in need of what? Nothing. And what's America facing tonight? We're rich and we don't need anything. So that's why God's allowing us to be here to study it. Now, all of these leaders in Athens, they were either born in Athens or they moved there as they achieved leadership. And so then you've got the Athens and its architecture. You've got Athens and its statuary. Now that doesn't seem like a lot. But you tell me how a man can take a piece of stone, a hammer and a chisel, and make it look like it's alive. But they did. I don't know. No sophisticated tools, no power drills. A hammer and a chisel. And it looks like fluid motion. The muscles and the technique, the statuary of Athens never been equal. That's the kind of skills that were put there. And what Paul is going to be able to tell them, you might can make stone live in picturesque form, but only God can make a dead man live and give him life eternal. You see how he's going to play off of everything? I want you to make that connection. And then also uh, their preeminence in arms, all right? Now, the city of Athens itself was first built up on an outcropping of rock. And that's where the first city was built. And then so many people began to build and be drawn to this great city that this vast plain that was in front of Athens, they began to build. And so it became to be known that the original city was Upper Athens and the cities that was built after was known as Lower Athens. Athens. And so this is where the Apostle Paul is going. And that city today, it still exists. Now, I wrote this down because I wanted you to listen to this, okay? That city of Athens still exists today. But it was twice burnt down by the Persians, Iran. It was destroyed by Philip II. It was also destroyed by Scylla in his conquest. It was plundered by Tiberius. It was desolated by the Goths under the reign of Claudius. And the entire area was ravaged by Alaric. And in 1455, it was seized by Omar, the great general, and he was the general of Muhammad the Great. In 1464, it was ransacked by the Venetians. In 1688, the Turks conquered it. And in 1812, the population had been reduced to the survivors of only 12,000 people. Only 12,000 people in that mighty metropolis by the time 1812 comes around. And now, today, it's free. And the Christian heritage is the reason and who do we all know that has roots from that world? The Greek Orthodox. And 
where do we all have someone that we know and are acquainted with that has descendants out of there? Is so many of them are in the restaurant business that we're friends with. And so they, these are their families and their relatives, and these are the Greek Orthodox that came out of that last population survival of 1812. Now, verse 16 ties it all together. Verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and for Timothy, his spirit was stirred in him, and he saw the, whole, the city wholly given to idolatry. Thank you for putting that on the screen. That helps. You can put that back up. I want to show that last phrase. All right. You see this last phrase, holy given to idolatry? Paul's waiting, and he's waiting for Timothy. He's waiting, he's waiting for Silas. And some time's going to pass before they can make passage and get to him. But God, having a plan, God being sovereign, he allowed Paul to walk the city streets. He allowed Paul to observe. It was like a recon mission on a military observation. God's getting ready to set the general of the gospel onto the city of Athens. And he is allowing him to do recon. And the conclusion of his recon was that he's going to make an observation that the whole city is wholly given to idolatry. And in the Greek passage, it reads this way. The city was full of idols. Everybody had idols. And without realizing it, ladies and gentlemen, every person you know and I know, if we're not careful, we'll have idols in our life. It's easy for things to creep in and to block our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul's walking around, he gets a burden. And he, it's like a, a, a revival observation. The Bible said his spirit was stirred within him. And it's the excitement of his mind. He's burdened. And his mind was greatly concerned. And here's the two things we ought to go home with tonight. When Paul walked in, saw his city, he had two things happen. His spirit was greatly stirred. And it meant two things. One, he had compassion. He loved the lost. He didn't feel like he was better than anybody, but he thought, Lord, they need you. And they're not going to make it without. And, and you know what? The second thing that happened there was distress. Paul realized, I'm one man. I can't do this task. And he began to pray. What did you start out the service with tonight? Prayer. America's in trouble. We ought to have compassion and we ought to be distressed. Oh God, will you touch us again? I didn't bring up what happened between the president and Benjamin Netanyahu and the peace of the century. The deal. I didn't bring that up yet, did I? I didn't mention that. You know why? Because I believe that if you listen to that speech of those two men, 
I believe somebody read to you Daniel's peace treaty out of the book of Daniel. I believe that with all my heart. I believe. I believe I heard the Daniel prophecy read worldwide. I followed it on French television. I followed it on Israeli television and uh, on British television and USA television. And this afternoon, I was following it on Israeli TV. and They were talking about the negotiations. And one of the things they talked about was the fact that the whole world was paying attention that this burdensome stone has always kept the world from peace. This cup of trembling has always kept the world from peace. But it looks like that the trembling is going to stop and the burden is going to be lifted and our generation will finally see peace and safety. Wow. You talk about connecting prophecy dots. And then when that went off, they started regular international news. And the next lead story from overseas, from Israel, was Asheville, North Carolina. That's right. Asheville, North Carolina. And it was about that Yelp, the food place, uh, the food app, that Asheville, North Carolina was the number one city in America for food. And we made international news, and they listed the top five cities in America, and Asheville, North Carolina was number one. And I'm thinking, wow, all this prophecy's being fulfilled, and our hometown is being elevated, that more people are going to come to this town, more people are going to move here, more people are going to visit here, and God's going to bring the whole world to us to be salt and light. I'm excited. I'm like Paul. My spirit is stirred. I wish y'all didn't have to go to bed tonight. We could stay up all night, make a pot of coffee and a couple of fried bologna sandwiches, and we could study all night long. We could tear off into the book of Daniel and connect it over into the book of Revelation, and we are living in Goosebump City right before the Lord comes back. Fried bologna helps you stay awake. That's good, that's extra thick. Extra thick. It's good, mustard. <laughs> and here you go. Hey, folks, don't go home feeling sorry for yourself. Don't go home with sad outlook on life. Rejoice that God allowed you to be alive during this time. And we ought to be like Paul. He let him walk the city, get a vision, get a burden. And we ought to do the same thing. We ought to see our hometown. We ought to have a vision. We ought to have a burden. And then this church ought to be prayerfully ready as visitors come through the door and people reach out needing spiritual help. You can't give out what you don't have. 
And we need to beg God to load us up. Give us that tenderness, that compassion, and that distress. We'll pick this back up. It's a fascinating study and how it overlaps with the world that we're in today. Father, bless your word. Bless the reading of your word. Keep us safe as we go home. Lord, if it be you will, you bring us back on the Lord's day to worship you in spirit and in truth. Do for us, O Father, what we're not able to do for ourselves. And we'll give you praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that today God spoke to your heart. You know, it's one thing to hear Ralph talk. It's one thing to hear a choir sing. It's one thing to hear a group bring a special song presentation. But it's altogether different when you're sitting there in that hotel room, in your house, maybe listening on your phone while you're at work, and God speaks to your heart. That's not me. That's not a Baptist, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian church. That's God. That's personal. That's you. And the Bible teaches quite clearly that when God touches your heart, when He speaks to you, that you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible teaches that all of us have to have Him. You say, well, Brother Ralph, your dad was a preacher. My dad being a preacher couldn't help me. Well, you say your mama taught Sunday school and she prayed. That couldn't help me. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, not me, not the Baptist, the Bible says that there's none righteous, though not one. Today is the day of salvation. You can begin anew. It can start over. The past can be covered by the blood. You can get out of living in your rearview mirror, the guilt, the problems. God can forgive you and you can start over today. You say, Brother Ralph, how's that possible? Well, a simple prayer is that very beginning. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. And I promise you, God, from this day forward, I'll serve you with the rest of my life. You can begin again in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you call us, you write to us. We'll send you a copy of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you to get into a local church, a church in your community, that you can have a fellowship of faith that will help you grow and teach you about the Word of God. Today's the day of salvation. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Let's serve the Lord together and let's meet each other in heaven. I'll be praying for you and I ask you to pray for me.